The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Okay, hello. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Hadas. I'm a member of the ISO in New York City. Um, and I want to welcome everybody to the first session this Friday morning of Socialism 2009. Um, we have a very exciting weekend uh, planned. And um, I want to uh, welcome everybody. We're going to have uh, Eric Reuter, uh, who is not Ahmed Shaki, um, give this talk. Um, Ahmed uh, was scheduled to give three talks um, this conference, and he's recovering from a surgery, and so that didn't really work out so well. Um, Eric um, is going to give a great talk, though, um, and uh, is a reporter for Socialist Worker newspaper, has written extensively about uh, the war, um, the uh, issues in the Middle East, uh, Palestine and Israel uh, in particular, um, the anti-war movement. He also authored this fantastic cover article um, in the International Socialist Review that I uh, recommend everybody check out on what is socialism. He'll also be speaking on that very same topic tomorrow. Um, so you can check that out as well. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to pass it over to Eric. Uh, and after he speaks, we'll have plenty of time for a discussion. Did you start that thing? Yeah, I did. You, just, you started that thing already? Yes. Okay. All right, yeah, this could be part one of two of your Eric Reuter experiences begin. <laughs> um, all right. Um, all right, so if you were a Martian, I mean, you're not, but if you were and you landed on Earth and tried to understand the situation in Palestine, judging by mainstream news coverage, you would have to conclude that Palestinians <clears throat> have been menacing the state of Israel for years, committing war crimes against Israelis and other unspeakable atrocities for decades. Or at the minimum, that there has been a cycle of violence, you know, a sort of tit-for-tat series of confrontations between two sides that have been at war at each other's throats maybe for millennia. That's one of the things that people say in the mainstream media. But both these images are completely wrong. Um, Israel is the oppressor, uh, oppressor. It exists on stolen land. It's economically and militarily superior. I think this is one of the things that goes underreported about the conflict. So often, you know, you hear about national rights and so on, and that's all very true. But Palestinians have about one twentieth the per capita income of Israelis on average. Israel is very much like a first world country. You can imagine it right next to, you know, some some of the most desperate poverty in the world. Um, and Israel has exacted an incredibly high toll on Palestinian society. Um, over the last, well, obviously over, over the course of decades, but I'm talking even most recently, just militarily speaking, you know, the, the number of, of Palestinians who've been killed, if, you know, since the Palestinian Intifada or second uprising began in 2000 is, you know, five, six, seven times, I think, I guess, since the Gaza offensive of, of January, it's now seven times higher than the t toll on the Israeli side. But, but that's even just the tip of the iceberg. You're talking about 40,000 people who've been injured, Palestinians injured, tens of thousands of Palestinian political prisoners, the daily humiliation of checkpoints and control across the occupied territories, the strangulation of the economy, unemployment rates, 60 and 70 percent in Gaza, 10,000 home de demolitions. This is just, again, since 2000. Uh, more than a quarter of a million square kilometers of Palestinian land confiscated. Um, through construction of the separation wall and so on, or, or lands destroyed, orchards uprooted, you know, which is people's livelihoods. You know, you're talking about, you know, orchards that have been um, 
tended by, by families for generations. Um, and if you haven't heard about it, I, I just saw a film, uh, what was it, a couple weeks ago, I think it's out in theaters now, called The Lemon Tree, which is about, um, it's fictional, but it's, it's sort of about this woman who's a Palestinian woman who um, tends an orchard that uh, her, uh, you know, and she's just been widowed, and the uh, Israeli defense minister decides to move in right across the, the wall, and they basically decide that they have to uproot, um, you know, her orchard, and so she starts to fight back, and so it's, it's a great film. Um, you should check it out. Um, and so, you know, that's the recent stuff. I mean, but, and so, you know, in terms of the roots of the conflict in this, again, trying to dispel the, if you're trying to convince a Martian, you know, that the Palestinians aren't the menacers, that would be some of, those would be some of the things you might suggest to the, to the visitor. Um, but <clears throat> I think what's more is that Israel's founding in 1948 was, was based on a premeditated plan to carry out ethnic cleansing on a mass scale. Um, and in fact, in 1948, when the State of Israel was founded, this plan was already 50 years in the making. Um, and the Zionist movement, which is, which just to define it, is a movement for an exclusively Jewish state created through a mass immigration to some part of the world away from Gentile civilization. Um, the Zionist movement was founded in the late 19th century. Um, and, and in fact, just to kind of highlight the, the, um, the sort of arbitrariness to, at a certain level, Palestine was only one of several territories that the founder of Zionism, Theodore Herzl, and others at the time, you know, had considered for, for colonization. There was Argentina, Uganda, Cyprus, and a number of other places that were discussed as possible locations for the Jewish state. <clears throat> but it was the religious faction within the Zionist movement that fought for the selection of Palestine as the aim of the operation. And, you know, and Herzl, who, you know, could obviously see the power of, of such a religious symbol, agreed that this, this would be the, the perfect place to set up a the ancient Jewish, to, to, it would be the, the place with the most emotional punch to settle on, you know, Palestine as the sort of ancient homeland of the Jews. Um, and so in, in 1948, when the plan uh, was put in, into place, there was basically the use of massacres, rape, the destruction of homes and villages, just outright terror um, to, to drive what ended up being about three quarters of a million, 800,000 Palestinians from their homes. Uh, places they had lived for generations, and this isn't really. This is not. not I'm not. This isn't just exaggeration. You know, uh, hyperbole, um, crazy-sounding words. This is the same stuff that the Zionists themselves talked about. It's the same language, even that they used when they talked about implementation of this, of this plan. This is a quote from Plan Dalit, or, or which is for the letter D, which is their fourth um, plan that they kind of refined in the leading up to the war for independence in 1948. Quote, these operations can be carried out in the following manner, either by destroying villages, by setting fire to them, blowing them up, and planting mines in their debris, and especially those population centers which are difficult to control continuously, or by mounting combing and control operations according to the following guidelines, encirclement of the villages, conduct, conducting a search inside them. In case of resistance, the armed forces must be wiped out and the population expelled outside the borders of the state. One of the most well-known massacres, uh, you know, uh, the name of a village you might recognize, was at Deir Yassin, where 254 men, women, and children were lined up against a wall, essentially, and shot. Um, but if you pick up um, Elon Papa's book, do we have that book here? Um, the Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. You can get it up in, in Haymarket, um, uh, which is a, a really excellent uh, history of, of this particular period. 
you know, he goes through the just that this was this was not unique at all. This was carried out over and over again in this uh, in this period, um, and you know, a lot of the of the leading Zionists of the time, you know, pretty much. You can just again go through the quotes and sum it up. Um, this is from David Ben Gurion, who was Israel's first prime minister. Quote: A small reaction to Arab hostility does nothing to impress anyone. A destroyed house, nothing. Destroy a neighborhood, and you begin to make an impression. Um, in 1943, Yitzhak Shamir, who was head of the Stern Gang, one of several Zionist paramilitary forces that would terrorize Palestinians as part of the drive to cleanse Palestine, he would go on to become a prime minister of Israel as well. In 1943, he wrote, quote, neither Jewish morality nor Jewish tradition can be used to disallow terror as a means of war. We are very far from any moral hesitations when concerned with the national struggle. First and foremost, terror is for us a part of the political war appropriate for the circumstances of today. Um, you know, again, pretty straightforward. Um, Moshe Dayan, who is a former Israel minister, Israeli minister of defense, explained in one of his candid moments, um, we came here to a country that was populated by Arabs, and we are building here a Hebrew Jewish state. Instead of Arab villages, Jewish villages were established. You don't even know the names of these villages, and I do not blame you because these geog geography books no longer exist. Not only the books, but all the villages do not exist. Now I go through all these quotes because for years, Zionist history asserted a number of so-called facts about the 1948 war, that, um, that Israel faced overwhelming Arab firepower, that Palestinian leaders encouraged um, Palestinians to leave the country, that there was no um, Zionist plan to drive the Palestinians out, um, and that Palestinians rejected the UN partition in 1947-48 and, and actually started the war. And it was, you know, this book in particular, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine by Papa, that, that sort of um, blew apart all of these different assertions and, and, and basically relied upon uh, declassified Israeli military documents to do so. Um, so when the, when, the, when the War of Independence ended, um, the Zionists then held more than 77% of Palestine including 95% of all the good agricultural land in the country. Um, and uh, as I said, there's about three quarters of a million uh, Palestinians have been um, uh, expelled. And so, you know, that's, that's the reason that today that war is known as the Nakba or the catastrophe in Arabic. Um, so I think all of this begs a, a, a question though, which is if this is the sort of pretty, um, ugly history of Zionism and, and the way that it's gone about achieving its aims, how has it been so successful in portraying itself as the victim while its real victims are regarded as terrorists with no respect for human life and so on? And I think that there are three important elements to answering this question and I want to spend a little bit of time on each of them. I think the first is that um, Zionism wasn't always successful at this actually. Um, in fact, uh, throughout most of the first half of the 20th century, um, most Jews rejected Zionism as at best irrelevant and at worst an obstacle to the fight against anti-Semitism that faced Jews living across Europe at the end of the 19th and the early 20th centuries when there really was an upsurge in anti-Semitism. Um, secondly, the, 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 the move, the, 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 even though it was tiny, the, the Zionist movement persisted and it, and it was able to even begin the, the process of colonization of Palestine by essentially appealing to Britain and then later the United States as, um, as, uh, as imperial powers that would have an interest in, in helping uh, the Zionists in Palestine because Zion, the Zionist movement or the State of Israel could act 
as a um, as a safeguard for the interests of the great powers in the Middle East. Um, and then the third reason, I'm going to come back and explain each of these more in detail. The third reason um, is that um, uh, for for the success of the Zionist movement was that um, after the state of Israel was established in '48, and then especially after the 1967 war in which um, Israel dealt a sort of damaging blow to to Egypt and and the sort of rise of Arab nationalism, um, the U.S. has offered, in particular, unswerving support uh, in economic, political, military, and diplomatic terms, and you know on a scale practically without parallel in history. Um, so I want to spend a little time on each of these. So um, the first thing about uh, only you know a small number of Jews actually being drawn to Zionism until the mid-20th century. I mean, Zionism developed in response to the growth of anti-Semitism uh, right across Europe uh, at the end of the 19th century, um, where the sort of rulers of um, you know various Eastern European areas, um, Ottoman Empire, uh, you know, the Tsarist Russia used anti-Jewish um, sentiment as a way to deflect attention from their own, the, you know, just from the, the, the economic crises of the, of the late part of um, the 19th century and as the sort of the feudal economy was, was falling apart and so on. Um, and so the, the Zionist approach to this uh, and, and the basic starting point of the whole kind of political philosophy of Zionism was that anti-Semitism could never be defeated and that Jews could never live safely with non-Jews and therefore needed to separate and leave. Um, Theodore Herzl, who I mentioned before, is the sort of known as the father of Zionism, um, you know, especially was uh, impressed or the, the Dreyfus Affair in 1894 in France made it an impression on him. Uh, the Dreyfus Affair, if, you're, if you uh, maybe remember the term from history, but history class, but not sure kind of what the details were, was the uh, conviction of a Jewish, of a French Jewish military officer who was framed as a spy by the French government, and um, who was sentenced to life in prison, and then later, couple, just a couple years after his conviction, found that he was, uh, he was set up. And um, in response to, to witnessing this as a journalist, uh, the Herzl reported as a, as a journalist on the Dreyfus Affair, he, he wrote, uh, after the, the experience, quote, I achieved a freer attitude toward anti-Semitism, which I now begin to understand historically and to pardon. Above all, I recognize the emptiness and futility of trying to combat anti-Semitism. Now, because allegedly Jews and non-Jews can't live together, um, you know, the Zionists conclude that Jews need to separate off in their own state. And um, uh, as sort of Herzl began to talk about and build this project of, of, of a Zionist uh, colonization plan, um, he ran into a critical uh, issue, which is that not many people were interested in going to some far-flung place that they, you know, weren't from. Um, and in fact, between 1880 and 1929, there were about four million Jews who left Russia, Austria-Hungary, Poland, Romania, and, and you know, in other countries to try to escape anti-Semitism. Of those four million, 120,000 went to Palestine, and more than three million went to the United States and Canada. Um, in 1914, there were about 12,000 members of Zionist organizations in the United States. Now, to, to put that, uh, to compare that to you know, other organizations, uh, there were as many Jewish members of the Socialist Party on the Lower East Side of Manhattan at the same time. So, um, it, it, you know, so why was there so little interest in the Zionist project? Um, and I think the main reason is that um, so many um, Jewish people, and especially the Jewish working class, weren't interested in just, you know, leaving where they were on their, their, their family connections and, you know, and so everything they knew to go somewhere completely different. 
um, they tended to, 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 especially when the left, and this happened, you know, generally in most of these places, when the left made, a, you know, an attempt, you know, uh, to actually, t you know, confront anti-Semitism head on, then, you know, Jews were drawn into the labor movement and into these sorts of organizations, left political organizations, as part of the fight um, against anti-Semitism and for, um, you know, for socialism, for radical ideas, and, and you know, as, as we're all involved in. Um, and um, there's a, a, I wanted to use a quote here from this, uh, a member of the Russian Social Revolutionary Party, Haim Zitzlovsky, who recalled what Herzl told him soon after he met with um, a Count von Pleva, who was the, um, the chief organizer of the programs and the anti-Semitic lynch mob type things in Russia. Um, Herzl was meeting with Pleva to try to convince Russia to convince the Ottoman Empire to give Palestine to the Zionists. And so um, Zilovsky says, um, I just come from Pleva. I have his positive binding promise that in 15 years at the maximum he will effectuate for us a charter for Palestine. But this is tied to one condition. The Jewish revolutionaries shall cease, shall cease their struggle against the Russian government. And if in 15 years the time of the agreement Pleva, if in 15 years from the time of the agreement, Pleva does not effectuate the charter, they become free again to do what they consider necessary. So in other words, what he's saying is, Jews should drop their struggle, um, and, and in exchange, the Russians will help us get Palestine, um, and that's the deal on it. But if that doesn't happen in 15 years, then we can go back to you know trying to overthrow them. <laughs> um, so, um, so here's what he says in response. Um, this is Zitlovsky to, uh, to uh, Herzl. We Jewish revolutionaries, even the most national among us, are not Zionists and do not believe that Zionism is able to resolve our problem. To transfer the Jewish people from Russia to Eretz Israel is in our eyes a utopia because a utopia will because and because it's a utopia we will not renounce the path upon which we have embarked, the path of revolutionary struggle against the Russian government which should also leave, lead to the freedom of the Jewish people. The situation of Zionism is already dubious enough by the very fact of it standing aloof from the revolution. Its situation in Jewish life would become impossible if it could be shown that it undertakes positive steps to damage the Jewish revolutionary struggle. And in fact, that's, that's what they did. And, and I'll, in a moment, you'll see even more kind of outrageous examples of that. Um, now, I want to turn to um, <clears throat> you know, the other thing about um, the other sort of major uh, development that drove Jews to ultimately embrace, at least in larger numbers, because it's still to this day not a universal fact that you know Jews um, are Zionists or anything like that. We've got plenty of people in the audience here to <laughs> to um, to make that case. Um, but it was the, the it was hol the Holocaust because when the Holocaust happened, um, you know it uh, it actually you know either it seemed to confirm some of the arguments that the Zionists made. Um, and uh, and when you, as you'll see in a moment, it was the willingness of the Zionists to use the tragedy of the Holocaust to further their colonial project, both at that time and then subsequently to this day as a kind of form of political and emotional blackmail, I think that was critical in the founding of Israel. Now, from their attacks, from the Zionist attacks on their political opponents, you might think that the Zionists stood up to Hitler in the Holocaust, you know, um, but the history of their inaction and their dealings with the Nazis actually makes a mockery of this, and it's it's pretty um, troubling when you when you read this stuff. It's just it's absolutely horrible. And I'm going to go through some of the examples. Um, I mean, the Zionists were 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 really betraying the European Jews that they claimed to be acting on behalf of, uh, and here are some of those 
ways. Um, first, they focused their financial resources on buying land in Palestine instead of trying to help Jews actually flee the Holocaust. Um, this is Ben Gurion, 1943. The disaster facing European Jewry is not directly my business. Um, uh, they believed that you know the the, uh, the 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 money should be spent buying land, and he says. Um, he goes on to say, they will say that I'm anti-Semitic and that I don't want to save the exile, that I don't have a warm Jewish heart. Oh, this is a different guy. This is a Yitzhak Grunbaum. This is at a 1943 Jewish agency meeting. The Jewish agency was sort of the, the precursor to the, the Israeli government. Um, he says, they will say that I'm anti-Semitic. Let them say what they want. I will not demand that the Jewish agency allocate a sum of 300,000 or 100,000 pounds sterling to help European Jewry. And I think that whoever demands such things is performing an anti-Zionist act. Um, another example that just shocked people when they learned about it, and this was some, some years after um, the events that are described, uh, a, a man named Rudolf Kastner, who was a top official in the Israeli Labor Party um, and who was in the person in charge of the rescue committee in Hungary during the war, he actively collaborated with the Nazis. Kastner negotiated with Adolf Eichmann, uh, who was the architect of the Holocaust, to get a, an approval for a, a, quote, VIP train of 1,600 Hungarian Jews to leave Hungary safely. Now, Kastner personally selected the passengers for the train, which included several hundred people from his hometown and a bunch of members of his family. And he worked with an SS officer named Kurt Becher to make the financial arrangements. In exchange for the safe passage of the train, Kastner agreed not to warn the Jews of Hungary, whose rescue he was responsible for, uh, about Hitler's plans for extermination and not to take any action to protect them. In fact, he did even worse than that. He, he helped deceive the Hungarian Jews by saying that they were just going to be relocated. The trains that were there to take them away were just moving them. Um, and in fact, after the war, Kastner testified at the Nuremberg trials on Becher's behalf, um, which meant that Becher actually went free, you know, who was the one, Becher, who, who, who you know, oversaw the murder of half a million Hungarian Jews. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, the, the quotes go on and on, but I'll just, I'll give you one more from Ben-Gurion, who I think, I think this sort of, you know, sort of says it all. He says, um, if I knew that it would be possible to save all the children in Germany by bringing them over to England and only half of them to Israel, then I would opt for the second alternative. For we, want, we must weigh not only the life of these children, but also the history of the people of Israel. So, um, it's kind of chilling stuff. Um, so... The, 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 the Zionist movement remained quite tiny, right up through the 30s and 40s, um, but it persisted. And the way that it um, attempted to you know, develop its influence was by appealing to, to, to the British and later U.S. imperial powers. Um, <clears throat> so they, they realized you know, quite early on that, you know, and especially because they had failed to win over, you know, large numbers of Jews in, in their appeals. I mean, they, they went on various disastrous attempts to try to um, recruit Jews to the Zionist cause. And, you know, as soon as it was discovered that they were essentially trying to tell people to turn their backs on class struggle and leave, um, they didn't get they didn't get very far. Um, and so they realized that they would have to actually, um, if they were going to be a minority group of settlers in some foreign land trying to you know, take over the control of the territory from the, the native population that they would have to get the political and military backing of a big power. Um, and what they, what the way that they, they pitched it was that if these imperialist powers backed the creation of a Jewish state, um, they could be a useful force in combating the rising Arab nationals in the Middle East. As, as Herzl explained, we could be um, 
A state of Israel could be a portion of the rampart of Europe against Asia, an outpost of civilization as opposed to barbarism. And you can see the sort of racism of, and the way they reflected the racism of the time that, you know, that continues right to this day, um, you know, uh, in, in terms of the way that the Palestinians are viewed. Um, and they also saw, uh, the Zionists also pitched that um, if there existed a state of Israel, it could be a way to counter the influence of revolutionary groups that fought anti-Semitism in their own countries. And this could help, you know, the sort of British and other rulers of, of, of Western Europe and the Americans have a counter, a way to, to counterpose something to the growth of revolutionary movements. Um, and so, uh, and this is, this, is, this is fantastic. This is Winston Churchill talking about his reasons for being supporting Zionism. And this guy, by the way, I mean, the whole British ruling class at this time was, you know, just unrepentant anti-Semites. So um, <laughs> here's, here's what he says. This, this, is, this is, gives you a flavor also just the way in which all the, the sort of rulers of Europe were, were concerned about what they saw as a, a rising tide of revolutionary um, struggles and, and fights. The movement among the Jews is not new. From the days of Spartacus to those of Karl Marx and down to Trotsky, Bela Kuhn, Rosa, these are all, of course, Jew, Jew, Jewish revolutionary leaders, Bela Kuhn, Rosa Luxemburg, and Emma Goldman, this worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstitution of society on the basis of re arrested development, of envious malevolence, and impossible equality, impossible equality, has been steadily growing. It becomes, therefore, especially important to foster and develop any strongly marked Jewish movement which leads directly away from these fatal associations. And it is here that Zionism has such a deep significance for the world at the present time. Should there be created in our lifetime by the banks of the Jordan a Jewish state under the protection of the British crown? Because at this point, of course, it was the British who controlled you know, Palestine as a colony and, and you know, had the British Empire kind of had expanded into the hole that was left by the collapse of the Ottomans uh, a couple decades earlier. Um, should there be created a Jewish state in the protection of the British Crown, which might comprise three or four million Jews, an event would have occurred in the history of the world which would, from every point of view, be beneficial and would be especially in harmony with the truest interests of the British Empire. So you've got Winston Churchill, the Zionist and the anti-Semite simultaneously. And this, this was perfectly fine with the Zionists. I mean, this was their sort of strategy. Um, Herzl himself negotiated for increased Jewish immigration to Palestine. Um, oh yeah, actually, no, I already did this stuff. This is a little bit put together the last two days, so there's a few rough spots, sorry about that. Um, all right, uh, so I, I wanted to actually say one other thing which uh, about um, the, the way in which this also, the, the Zionist, I think one of the things about Zionism, again, to, to sort of, this is a little bit of a digression, but I think it's an important point. As far as trying to explain how it was that the Zionists became, you know, were so successful in projecting themselves, uh, and, and if you especially if you look at this country where, you know, it's, it's remarkable, you think, <clears throat> all right, there were more Jewish socialists in Manhattan than there were Zionists in all of the United States in the early part of the 20th century. How is it that we've got a situation where this is one of the most pro-Zionist countries where, you know, there are, you know, again, again, not all Jews in the United States, you know, are Zionists, but it is a fairly substantial number. But, so, and especially people who are on the left, many have illusions in or soft spot for Zionism. How, how, how was this? Well, I think it's important as part of this history to understand that the Communist Party in the United States, but also the Communist parties throughout the world, actually supported the formation of the State of Israel. Um, now, why, why would this be? Why would 
they support, why would the Soviet Union support the, a colonizing project? Well, because the Soviet Union hoped to win Israel, actually, into its sphere of influence um, after the Second World War. And the USSR saw, saw support for Israel's drive to eject the British Empire, because before the, the, the Zionists could actually fight their war of independence, a couple years earlier, they had to actually kick the British out which was getting easier to do in, in, you know, in the aftermath of the Second World War and so on. And so they push the British out. Well, the Soviet Union saw this as a way to kind of enlarge their sphere. This was a good thing. They liked seeing the British get pushed out of the Middle East. And so they were actually giving backing to the Zionists at the time. They allowed Czechoslovakia to supply arms. And in fact, the United States, which wasn't so happy about seeing the British ejected, especially if it meant the enlargement of the... Of the um, uh, well, just because they saw that as a sort of blow against the empire and so on, they they imposed a, a, an arms embargo on, on selling arms to the Zionists. So, you know, you've got the situation where, and of course, we're talking about a period of Stalinism, and you, there's more talks on Stalinism about the weekend to uh, understand how this all came to be. But the, but the point is, is that a lot of people, you know, Jews who were communists, for example, were told that that their revolutionary duty was to support, you know, the the foundation of the state of Israel at this time. Okay. So now I'm going to turn more from the sort of early part of Zionism and, to the, and the founding of the State of Israel through to sort of the, the, the subsequent period, you know, um, what's happened since 1948, and, and in particular to just outline a few points about the level of U.S. support, and then I'm going to, and the way in which Israel acts as a sort of guarantor of U.S. imperial interests, and I'll conclude and we'll open up for discussion. Um, Okay, um, <clears throat> I mentioned before, you know, that in 1967, um, Israel, which, you know, had basically been, um, after its foundation, uh, uh, you know, by the way, let me just point out that um, in 1948, when the founding of the State of Israel happened, Jews still only accounted for, even though they had been trying to, you know, get Jews to immigrate there for 50 years, still accounted for only about a third of the population of, of the area. Um, and, and yet they, but they had been trying to draw on the, you know, the save, the collected savings of Jews throughout the world to finance, you know, the building of a military and so on and so forth, and had been actually somewhat successful. And of course, had been receiving aid from, from different sides at different points, playing off different powers against one another and so on. Now, um, so by 1967, um, they had already begun to be quite a formidable force, and they really proved this d d d dramatically in, in the 1967 war. And that was the war in which they came to occupy um, the West Bank and Gaza, which they hold to this day, the Golan Heights, um, and the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and, uh, and it was after 1967 that the U.S. really turned towards supporting Israel. I mean, it had been, you know, giving some, like, you know, small amounts of aid, but it went from dramatically overnight after 1967 to about a half billion dollars a year in 1967 dollars, um, you know, as soon as Israel showed that it was a military, um, uh, you know, force to be reckoned with. Um, so since 1949, the United States has given more than a hundred billion dollars worth of aid to Israel, which dwarfs any other recipient of U.S. aid. Um, and, and in fact, for years, for decades, Israel has been the top recipient of U.S. foreign aid. Uh, it's received for most of the last three decades, up until more recently when the war on terror meant that the United States started funneling billions to Pakistan and, and so on. Um, Israel received roughly one-third of the entire foreign aid budget every year. 
despite the fact that Israel has a population that's 0.001% of the world's population and already has you know, one of the highest per capita incomes in the region. Um, now today, Israel receives about a $3 billion a year as a lump sum, of which 75% that get, then gets, is required to be spent on US weapons systems. And so um, then there's usually you know, more aid in the form of, of uh, grants and loans and so on. Um, and, uh, and this is really a sort of all part of uh, the, the building up of Israel, as, a, as, I, as I mentioned before, as a guarantor of U.S. interests. This is the way uh, Israel's Haaretz newspaper put it in an editorial in 1951. People may have heard this quote before. Um, Israel has not been, sorry, Israel has been given a role not unlike that of a watchdog. One need not fear that it will exercise an aggressive policy towards the Arab states if this will contradict the interests of the USA and Britain. But should the West prefer, for one reason or another, to close its eyes, one can rely on Israel to punish severely those of the neighboring states whose lack of manners toward the West has exceeded the proper limits. Um, and so, you know, that really has been the role that Israel has played um, to this day. And in fact, um, Alexander Haig, the former Secretary of Defense, is that right? Secretary of State, thank you, um, described uh, Israel as our largest and only unsinkable aircraft carrier in the world. You know, you get the idea of what, of how they see um, the importance of Israel and the role that it can play. Um, but, uh, and I think the other thing that's important to say about this is that there's, there's, a, there's a reason why Israel is so in, in, critical, because it, it acts as an extremely stable um, uh, regime in the, in the region, uh, as, as opposed to the various reactionary Arab and uh, Arab states, and Arab capitalist states, because um, in those countries, in the Arab states, only a thin number, only, you know, kind of the upper crust supports U.S. imperialism or, or is willing to, to deal with it. And as, for example, happened in 1979 in Iran when the, the Shah, the U.S.-backed puppet there, was overthrown, they can be these stable, these, the, the Arab, the so-called Arab allies of the United States can suddenly be turned into their opposite. Um, or the situation where Saddam, you know, took U.S. funding and aid for a long time but then decided to go against the wishes of the United States. Um, and so, uh, as, as compared to Israel, where a country so dependent upon imperialism and so tied to it, the, the sort of universally, top to bottom in society, supports the United States and, and you know, understands or kind of, it's just seared into the sort of Israeli consciousness about its connection to and support for um, U.S. imperialism in the area. Now, in addition to this, to this sort of very direct role that Israel plays, um, there's sort of other secondary um, elements of Israel's support for and, and acting on behalf of the U.S. interests. For example, there's the outsourcing that the United States does to Israel for arming various paramilitary, right-wing, different kinds of groups, death squads, and so on around the world that the U.S. can't support directly because it's either against U.S. law, although of course that's never really stopped them, but um, or it's just too politically, you know, costly to to, to to carry out such things. So you're talking about Israel supplying arms or training to the Suharto dictatorship um, in the 70s during its war against the. East Timorese, or the Nicaraguan Contras during the 80s, um, or Chile's Pinochet uh, dictatorship, or you know military dictatorships in Brazil, or Argentina, or El Salvador, or Guatemala. You know, the list goes on. Um, so, um, and then there's, uh, as uh, a Middle East commentator Stephen Zunas put it, um, the way in which the United Israel has has helped 
um, directly and indirectly in the uh, the U.S. military occupation of Iraq. Um, and he, he, he ticks off some of the things. Helping to train U.S. special forces in aggressive counterinsurgency techniques. Sending urban warfare specialists to Fort Bragg to instruct assassination squads targeting suspected Iraqi guerrilla leaders. Um, the U.S. civil administration in Iraq was modeled after Israel's civil administration in the occupied Arab territories, you know, for the, for the running of post-war Iraq. Um, Israelis have helped arm and train pro-American Kurdish militias and have assisted U.S. officials in interrogation centers for suspected insurgents. Wouldn't want to see those. Um, Israeli advisors have shared helpful tips on erecting and operating roadblocks and checkpoints, have provided training in mine clearing and wall breaching methods. I mean, you know, the, you get the idea. Um, so, um, uh, you know, Israel continues to, to play this role today, and, and of course, it continues to enjoy you know massive um, uh, support from the United States, and I and I think that that's why, um, even if, um, as we saw during the Gaza offensive, a lot of people are shocked and horrified by what's happened, and their their sort of unquestioning support for Israel gets shaken a bit. In the absence of some organized force that's able to kind of express some of this background, this history, this context, this way to understand what Zionism is and what it represents, um, that when the initial, when the immediate urgency or the kind of horror of what happened in Gaza sort of is passed, when the media not stops, you know, focusing on the plight of the residents of Gaza, then you know the various forces at work, um, you know, the U.S. politicians. Um, the the Israel lobby, which is a real phenomenon, and we could talk more about that in discussion. If people want um, begin to try to reconstruct, you know, refurbish, rebrand the um, the image of Israel, and I think that that's why this um, this history is so important. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's an important part of trying to rebuild, you know, a real uh, movement for Palestinian rights and so on. And I'll just leave it there. And uh, thanks. Okay, thank you, Eric. That was great. Um, I am uh, going to help facilitate this discussion by keeping a uh, speaker's list. Um, and the way it's going to work is if people just want to raise their hands, I'll keep a list. Um, and I don't know most people here, so I may call on you by an item of clothing that you're wearing or, or something like that. Um, you know, Eric may or may not come in throughout the discussion if he wants to address uh, specific questions. Um, and um, what else should I say? Um, there's a bunch of people here, and we have somewhat limited amount of time. So um, if you're like, you know, getting close to three minutes or so, I'm just going to tap uh, so that you know to begin to wrap up your thoughts. Um, I think that's that's it for now. So I'll take a I'll take a list of hands. Any questions, any thoughts? Um, you know, Eric laid out a pretty uh, sweeping, sweeping uh, history, um, a lot of which is not known and a lot of which is uh, controversial. Um, so if people have any questions, disagreements, hesitations, all of that is, is um, uh, more than welcome and uh, especially good to get out towards the beginning of the discussion so we can get a full discussion going. And um, also, if people could introduce themselves um, when they speak, so because not everyone knows each other, that would be great. Go ahead. Thanks, uh, Pamela from Houston. 
I was just wondering if somebody could speak uh, a little bit about religion in all of this and how uh, the Jewish faith uh, and Christian faith plays into this. Okay, great question. Um, more questions, thoughts, and also if people want to address uh, the question of religion, that would be great. Um, I have the gentleman in the back, followed by, was that a hand? No? Okay. The gentleman in the back, followed by you. Okay. Hey, I'm uh, Charlie from Chicago. I'm a little interested in, uh, Eric, you touched on this in your talk, but uh, kind of the, the legacy of uh, left-wing, the myth of left-wing Zionism, because that's used as a leverage uh, among liberal and left-leaning American Jews. Uh, Israel sometimes is thought of as a socialist society because of the history that we've seen and everything. And I was wondering if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Okay, great. Um, I'm also going to suggest, not to put anyone on the spot, but if you do want to stand when you speak, it might help other people see you and hear you. Um, okay, so the woman in towards the back will be followed by the gentleman in the front. That's you. Oh, that's me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, well, I'm Sherry from D.C., and um, I, am a, I used to work at the, um, the Holocaust Museum, and I did, like, tour guiding and research there. So you guys all know about the um, the whole incident that happened there. Um, and I actually, I, I've been able to talk to people about things like that. I went to a paper cell like last week and um, talked to them about the whole incident and things like that. And I think when it comes to like aspects of like that, that's like true racism, that's true anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. This guy goes in and like shoots a guy for like absolutely no reason. And then you never know what he would have further done to other people that were going there to learn about um, Jewish history, and my uh, main question is, how do you, um, like, where do you exactly start with um, preventing, like, anti-Semitism and getting people more uh, motivated into reading about the history of um, Zionism and, and aspects that they're presenting, and then how do you get people to, like, not believe that, you know, um, left-wing groups like ours are, like, anti-Zionist or something like that? Um, and also, um, I don't know if that came out right, and what do you, um, what exactly is the, um, the Obama administration saying about Israel and the problems within the Gaza, because I haven't really been able to keep up with things like that, I've been focusing more on um, gay marriage and the things that are going on in Iran, so um, that would be another good thing to know about, like where to start to like show, um, you know, not all socialists are like that, like, you know, like Jews or bad or anything like that. That's how we're in support of. We're in like for the right and defense of people to live safely and freely where they want. You know, and not have to to worry about walls and barriers and unemployment and stuff like that. And can live a safe life and drink clean water when they want to and go to school and not have to worry about being attacked and things like that. Okay. Um, I have Roberto, followed by uh, Annie. My name is Roberto. I want to ask you, you said that the um, the Israeli population, the Jewish Israeli uh, population, uh, mostly support from top and above the Zionism. What should be our policy for these people, to the workers in Israel, what we should say to them, and all related to that uh, question? Okay. <coughs> So we have a lot of questions on the floor, which is really great. I encourage more 
Uh, and also, if people want to take stabs, at, you know, at any of these questions, that would be great. If any point you want to come back, that would be great as well. Um, uh, have Annie followed by um, the gentleman in the back, and the people who just raised their hands, just keep them up for one second, so I can. Okay. Which gentleman in the back? Um, you in the s with the square plaid. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> I just arrived on a bus from New York City, so you have to excuse me. I'm okay. um, Annie, I'm from Chicago. I wanted to talk about what Sherry raised about Zionism and anti-Semitism. I think we have to start with being totally clear that we are, as socialists, there's a complete difference between Zionism and anti-Semitism. We are absolutely opposed to Zionism. We don't believe that there should be a state of Israel for an F one ethnic group to have rights over another, but there should be an exclusive ethnic state. But we are absolutely dead opposed to anti-Semitism as well, which is not, as Eric laid out in the history, is not true of Zionists. Zionists accept the existence and the reality of anti-Semitism as being a permanent feature of society, and that's why you have to have go and have a state, and they're willing to collaborate historically with anti-Semitic anti forces and every time there is an incident, like what happened, the horrible thing that happened last week at the Holocaust Museum, they use that to say, see, that's why we need Israel. And I think we have a completely different approach, which is, first of all, Zion it's not anti-Semitic to be anti-Zionist. It's anti-racist to be anti-Zionist. Second of all, we, in a time of economic crisis like we're in now, we know that there are going to be people who start to say, well, the Jews control the media, look at the Jews in, mm -hmm. in the tre Treasury Department, blah, 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 and that that kind of thing, we have to say, we have to argue against that and say that's a, you know, you let capitalism off the hook, anti that kind of argument, you know, to say that it's the Jews that are, the, you know, the, whatever, the Trilateral Commission and all that stuff is to let capitalism off the hook. and. And that's ultimately means that you can't fight that kind of racism, means you can't fight back against the real source of your oppression because you think mm -hmm. it's a bunch of Jewish bankers and not the real source of what's going on. Um, and you have to sort of go through that argument with some people. And then we have to fight the right. I mean, if the, the, the right wing, the Nazis, who hate Arabs and Jews mm -hmm. and black people, because that's who they killed last week at the Holocaust Museum, this is black security guard is so awful um, and they hate we have a common you know we have a common they have they hate all of us and we have a common enemy and we our the social solution is to stay right where we are we're not going anywhere and they're not gonna make us go to some other country to escape we're gonna stay right here and we're gonna organize and fight um, in a united way and we're gonna fight every time that they they're emboldened right now because they think they have an opportunity in a crisis like this Every time a Dr. Killer Tiller is killed or something like this happens, some lunatic thinks they have an opportunity to, you know, expire, they get inspired and they go out and try something crazy. Though we're gonna take that on and we're gonna organize and we'll work with anyone to build a demonstration and protest the far right. And that's how we show in practice that we are the first people out there fighting against anti-Semitism and racism, but we don't give an inch on the question of Zionism because that is a completely different question and we don't Set, they set the terms when they conflate those things, and we have to set the argument on different terms. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, so before I call on the gentleman in the back, there were a flurry of hands in this area, and I just want to make sure I have them all, um, because I, I wrote down the woman in the front, the man with a gray hat, the man in the back with a black shirt, and the gentleman with a keffiyeh. Did I miss anybody? 
Um, okay, so uh, go ahead in the back. John Grinnell from Toronto. Uh, if Eric's uh, Martian went candidate, <laughs> <laughs> wonder why is the Canadian government spending so much time attacking the opponents of Zionism? This is new, just in the last, couple, last year or two. Uh, particularly insisting that anyone who puts in place the question of Israel, the question of the status of Israel, is anti-Semitic. Anyone who uses the term Israeli apartheid is anti-Semitic, etc. And of course, by the way, any, expressing anti-Semitic ideas in Canada is illegal. Uh, that opens the door to all kinds of repressive measures against those who oppose uh, the actions of the Israeli government. This has become a very, very serious in Canadian campuses. Um, very difficult to organize. Uh, discussions and lectures on the uh, Palestinian situation. But also there are three major unions in Canada who are in favor of sanctions against Israel. The government has spoken out against this, attacked the union leaderships. Uh, the Canadian Arab Federation has been sanctioned for opposing the government of Israel and saying uncomplimentary things about leaders of the Canadian government. And so on. What, what, why is this happening? We have the impression, of course, all these measures against the friends of Palestine apply against all, all opponents of the government, all organizations of the government. We start to get the feeling this is not just about the Palestinians, it's about us, it's about the character of our own country. The, the attempt is being made to change the character of our country in a way that's prejudicial against all working people under the banner of Zionism. But we have in Canada, it seems to me, is a major phenomenon of non Jewish Zionism being promoted and carried out by the Canadian government, the media, and all around it. Uh, in that context, I'd just like to say I think we're doing rather well. So I'll just tell a little story. That uh, in, in Toronto, of course, the main <coughs> political event of the year is the Pride March. It's about a million people go to march next week. It has a human rights contingent that reflects the origin of the march as the measure of social resistance, even though nowadays it's very respectable and the chief of police is there and all the police forces and so on, very quickly. But uh, we, we, we have an already wonderful organization in Toronto called the Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid, which of course is in charge uh, of the government all the time. And uh, it has various affiliates, including uh, Labour for Palestine that helped to organize the trade union support for that mention. And we just formed another affiliate uh, a couple of months ago called uh, Quiet. That's uh, Queers Against Israeli Apartheid. And uh, they, of course, signed up to march in the, uh, in the human rights contingent of gay pride march, particularly in order to counter the lies about how Israel was some kind of a stronghold of, of gay rights. Uh, and the Zionists launched a public polemic against that, saying that the uh, opponents of Israel are in business in gay pride march. So the interesting thing was this played all across the media and got absolutely nowhere. And uh, we will be marching very proud next uh, next week. Okay, um, I have the woman in the blue followed by uh, the gentleman in the gray hat, and then uh, I'm going to throw it to Eric for a couple of comments as well. Hi, my name is Kathy. I'm from Puerto Rico, and I want to ask um, where do you think the, the struggle? is headed to, what is that that is missing? Missing Because we have seen the recent um, attacks um, early this year um, and last year at the end, we have seen like, I don't know, like <laughs> a lot of hundreds of protests around the world. 
Argentina, Puerto Rico, etc., etc. So a lot of protests, and you, we have the Palestinian resistance. We have, you know, a lot of protests. What is missing? You know, we have uh, a uh, un pueblo people that's being actually, um, you know, a genocide. Practically, they want to kill them all. So we have um, that danger. So este, <laughs> sorry. Um, that danger is right there, and we need, you know, to do something about it. Like I, I feel like really like now. <laughs> um, so basically, what what I have seen is that we have the resistance that, and we have, and also there's there's a problem there because we also when we think in, in um, Palestine, we we only think in, in Gaza, but there's a lot of other asentamiento palestino. Um, which is where we are practically, you know, separate. Where that's that's basically a, a, a real barrier, a real barrier, barrier. barrier. Yeah. So, so we have that in Palestine, and then at other at around the world, we have a lot of people that are consciente, but you know, we haven't been able to stop this, and that's that's what I'm like. What's missing, and where should we go headed to? The other thing I want to speak about is that. Um, What's going on in Palestine is not not different what, of what's going on on the rest of the Middle East in regards to what are the interests of, of the, the bourgeoisie in North America, the bourgeoisie in, 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 in England and other parts, of what are their interests there. So basically it's part of the same thing. And the other thing I want to speak about really fast is about the fact, the history. When usually, usually when we speak about Palestine, people say, we have to go Back, 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 million years, millennia, uh, um, yeah, thousands of yeah. years ago, to to understand what's going on. That's not true. That's not true. Um, um, and and we, when we speak about religion, they always uh, speak about returning to the land, but that's not in literal. Uh, um, uh, it's not literal. It's not literal. Literally, it's it's. Uh, it's more spiritual. It's something really spiritual. So I guess I guess that's uh, uh, yeah. Uh, we are confusing that. So nothing. Bad. Thank you. <laughs> um, just so people know, we have quite a few people on the list, and um, in the interest of getting everyone in, I, I'm going to try to uh, limit you to uh, maybe two and a half minutes or something like that. Um, so the gentleman in the gray hat. Paul from Washington, D.C. Um, one question I had that I was hoping you could just sort of help paint the larger picture of is, um, I mean, I kind of understand it, but just, you could just paint the whole sort of just general idea of what the profit was seen as in the U.S. investment in, in Israel. You know, what this $100 billion was seen as so important for us to spend. Um, and, and also sort of the benefit to the British Empire that they sort of saw in the installation of the State of Israel. I mean, it, there's a lot of like, you know, sort of things that come from a lot of different uh, areas that, that I, I don't, if you could just sort of help paint that picture, that'd be great. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that, I mean, especially with this, you know, recent Gaza um, massacre, I mean, this is like, the best time to sort of talk to people about about what's happening in Palestine, and I think one of the reasons is is because 
Americans are really good at forgetting history. And so a lot of people in this country have no idea sort of like about the history of, of this. I've only recently sort of sort of looking into it. And, and, and so nobody really, when you tell people in this country that this is the country beyond any other that we give the most funding to, everyone's just like, what? Like, why? You know, what, what, what is that? And, 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 you know, when you talk to, uh, you know, American Jews oftentimes and tell them that, that, that the name of the operation, Operation Castlet, you know, comes directly from a Jewish, you know, you know a holiday. It's, it's, a, it's a direct reference to, you know, this is done in the, you know, and so it's just like, it's just a great time to talk to people and, and to get people thinking about this again. And the, the Israeli government never forgets their history and always, is one of the main problems, are so stubborn about their biased history that they never forget anything that's ever happened and use things from ages old to justify whatever they're doing now. And so now we need, it's sort of a good time to sort of bring back this history, but bring back this this history of like really what happened here. And so I think that now is a really good time, and time has passed to really bring up this conversation. Uh, I'm going to let Eric jump in for a minute, and then after Eric, uh, I'm going to go to the man in the back with the black shirt. Yeah, I think what Kathy said about religion, to answer your question about the world religion, is important because, um, I, you know, it's, there's, the, I, think the, I think the Zionists benefit from portraying it as a religious struggle, in part. It helps to kind of wed people, commit people to the project, um, and they suggest that it's like some 2,000-year-old struggle. I mean. I mean, it's just, it's simply not. I mean, there's just, there's no way that you can factually support that. In fact, for, for most of the last 2,000 years, um, there was, you know, a lot of kind of um, small kind of feudal type villages and stuff like that where, you know, some villages were, were Arab, some were Jewish. There was lots of, you know, there was really not any discord to speak of until the sort of, the, the growth of a kind of Zionist project began to stimulate a kind of nationalist response from the Palestinians. Um, but of course, religion serves as a useful cloak for you know all sorts of political projects and aims, and that's really what I think is you know has gone on there. I mean, you could talk more about. I mean, obviously, there's the sort of the more out there fundamentalist Christians in the United States who see the return of the Jews to the state of Israel as part of the return of. Christ to Earth, or there's some sort of complicated, you know, sort of doctor, uh, you know, scriptural, you know, uh, argument for why they want to see the, you know, because this will hasten the coming of rapture, yeah, etc., etc. So I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not really so, in, I don't follow the sort of Christian fundamentalist <laughs> logic too carefully. So anyway, forgive my vagueness on that. Um, uh, <laughs> The um, the legacy of left wing Zionism is very important. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of glossed over the, the the difference, the sort of two wings of Zionism, the more right wing wing, which was the sort of, you know, let's just go in and you know, kill, transfer, cleanse, expel, um, massacre, terrorize, and so on, and 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 you know, and, and in truth, the whole Zionist project has essentially come to an agreement around that. That is the shared position of the left and the right Zionists today in the early 20th part of the 20th century, especially when revolutionary and socialist organizations had much more um, connection, I mean, when, when Jews were much more drawn to those sorts of organizations, Zionism couldn't really just succeed as a sort of pro-imperial doctrine. I mean, it, it would just be rejected outright by, the, 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 you know, so many in, in the Jewish community who were quite left-wing in their, in their sentiments. And so what, what 
um, what they did was to promote them promote the Zionist causes in part as a sort of workers' cause, as a labor cause. They built a, 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 the Histadrut, a, a, a Jewish workers' union, a fairly unusual union because its whole aim was to displace Palestinian labor. You know, um, they they then helped to 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 um, ensure the sort of the the, the slogan of um, was it Jewish land, Jewish labor, Jewish produce. Um, and so, um, and the same is true of the kibbutzim, you know, those collective farms that are supposedly sort of socialist or what have you, again, were based upon the, um, the exclusion of, of Palestinians and, and, and Arab labor. Um, and then lastly, I'll just say about, you know, what is this, to the question of the Israeli working class, um, which you raised, I mean, there really is, um, as, as we've seen, you know, not only with the support, with the election of this incredibly right-wing government in Israel, with, which includes Avigdor Lieberman, who's basically a fascist, uh, and to the fact that 90% of Israelis supported the Gaza offensive, you know, in all of its um, violence, um, there really is a top-to-bottom support for the imperial project. And the truth is, is that Israel, which is built as a as a state of the Jews of the world, where any Jew anywhere in the world can come and get citizenship there, many have come from, um, you know, Eastern Europe, Russia, and other parts of the world, and those more recent immigrants actually are both the ones who are ex also experience discrimination because it is such a sort of race conscious racialized society there's a lot of discrimination against recent immigrants but because like many immigrant populations they they especially want to prove their worth their commitment to the Zionist cause they're the most right-wing politically speaking in terms of you know and, and consistently so uh, part of the population and so I think that as far as a policy towards the Israeli working class we have to basically acknowledge that it's really not a, a sort of um, a practical to try to uh, appeal to the Israeli working class as a significant supporter of the struggle for Palestinian rights which is not to say that we should forever and for, and for, for always write them off there needs to be, you know, attempts to, to analyze, reanalyze the changing changes in the economy and so on, and to make political appeals as 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 possible. But I think in the in the kind of short to medium to maybe even long run, there's there seems like a fairly faint glimmer that that there could be real um, real sort of inroads made for these sorts of p political positions. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll end there. There's a, a few other things I wanted to say about the the struggle, the movement, and stuff like that that people ask. But um, I'll come back to that. Great. Um, so I have the gentleman in the back, followed by the gentleman with the kafia. <coughs> My name is Naveed. I'm from DC. Uh, there's just a couple of things I'm going to try to keep this as, as short as possible. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the support uh, among immigrants in Israel for the, the, the far right. Actually, um, America Hanna's base of support was Yemenite Jews, Moroccan Jews. They, they flocked to him in, in ways that, for whatever reason, Ashkenazi Jews didn't, but um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was sort of touches on the religious question, the turn of the right wing in the U.S. from in the 1950s and 60s an anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist perspective to one that is philo-Semitic and pro-Zionist, but only in the way that Israel is seen as like a like a hammer against the the swarthy barbarous hordes who are swarming the gates, you know that that, that sort of thing. I mean, it, it's really it really is that uh, that kind of rhetoric that you read on, on blogs and, and in their magazines. And um, the only other thing was uh, when we talked about the, um, what is the cause of the massive uh, support for the Zionist project in the U.S., one of the things that needs to be addressed is the question of the media. John Stewart was the only major uh, 
media, and, 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 and even though he's a bourgeois liberal, he was one of the few who actually, in a very sarcastic way, took down the, the rhetoric and the lie that was being uh, spouted everywhere. Everyone else was saying just the most vile, horrific stuff you can imagine, and it was just like, the, the, the singularity of the message was just overwhelming. You know, I, mean, I mean, thank God that we have other outlets now, because I mean, it was just the same thing being said in every single outlet, MSNBC, CNN, Fox, Washington Post, New York Times. It was just absolutely amazing to me. I mean, the Post printed an editorial by Jimmy Carter that pretty much contradicted everything else that they had written. You know, I mean, he said, you know, why is this apartheid? I mean, he listed, you know, what it was. So, anyway, I'd just like to throw that. Okay, great. Um, I have the gentleman with the kefir will be followed by um, Kareem. <coughs> um, my name is Ibi Keller. I'm from Washington, D.C. I've been in bits of Palestine and just returned to Mexico from the delegation to the Nazi Street. Um, I want to I'll basically just address some of the questions that were asked from perspective on the ground. Okay. Um, first off, um, the lady who I don't asked about, well, someone talked about the Holocaust, and she went on about it a bit. And I just have basically one statement to make about everything I've said about the Holocaust. As um, grandson of a survivor whose family was wiped out, I can still honestly say that the Holocaust is a goddamn industry. Um, and it just, a lot of ways, funds, whether financially or emotionally, Zionism. Um, as far as religion goes, there was something asked about what is the whole dynamic of religion. Um, between Christianity and Judaism on the ground, and Islam, Islam's there too. Um, Christianity is just extremely marginalized. Uh, the Bob Pope was there just the other month. I was in Vincent Ford. He was, everyone was so glad he was you know, crossing the wall coming to Ida refugee camp. Um, nobody gave a shit about him, because um, he couldn't really do that much. And Oh well, Christianity is kind of just there. Judaism, <laughs> uh, sorry to be honest. Um, Judaism is on the ground, it's a tool. It is, most of Israel is a secular society. Um, if you go to Tel Aviv, you'd be hard pressed to find too many religious folks. But if you go to a settlement, you will find an abundance. Because it's, it's a gathering spot, if you will. Um, and it's really easy to wave those handguns in the name of Hashem, apparently. Um, other than that, religion isn't really a factor in this whole conflict as far as goals go. I mean, taking over religious sites in Kolio, Hebron, um, it's, it's nice to think for settlers that they're actually going after religious sites trying to reclaim old cities, but nobody really cares about them either. Um, at least it's not politically. Zionism itself wouldn't. I had a question that made me raise my hand, um, because you said, I was taking notes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Israel's establishment in 48 was based on a premeditated plan for ethnic cleansing. So there's a premeditated plan. I want to know the end game is or what. I don't think you have it written down in your notes, but I'd like to know your thoughts. Anyone's thoughts? Because, I mean, it's a travesty what's happening, but 
I'll start to wrap up. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, just curious what that game is. Uh, you asked where the struggle's headed, and on the ground over there, it's headed into a line of um, your guys' canisters, rubber bullets, bullets, bombs, artillery shelling. Um, you said there's so many protests worldwide, but quote-unquote, what is missing? I just wrote in my notes, action, action, in the Gaza Strip specifically. Like, people can pledge billions of dollars, and that can't buy a damn thing, because there's nothing there to buy. Can't buy reconstruction, can't buy food, there's no food. Um, if there's no water in the West Bank, like there is in many parts right now, you can have money, you still can't take a shower, because there's no water to buy. It needs action. Um, Sorry, I'm going to need to... Thank, thank you. Sorry about that. I actually um, have a pretty long list, and at this point, I don't think we'll be able to get to everybody, so I apologize in advance. Um, and I am going to try to be a little bit more strict with a time limit, so I'm going to tap when you have like 30 more seconds left to go. So start to wrap up your thought, and then when I say wrap up, then I, you know, it'd be good to just wrap up. Um, okay, so I said um, you were up next. Um, followed by um, the gentleman in the white behind you. Um, I'm Kareem from Boston, and uh, I don't know what the end game is, but it's really scary. Um, Alan Papa was actually this historian where I talked about, actually spoke in Boston recently. He said that we can expect a lot more Gaza-style massacres, as well as uh, repression of Palestinians in the borders of Israel, to the extent that it has borders. So it's looking really bad, and obviously they selected this right in the government. Um, I wanted to speak to the question about the benefit for the United States, like why the U.S. has invested $100 billion um, uh, into, into, the, into this uh, Zionist project. And the, the kind of, I mean, the, the Middle East and Central Asia are the location of the world's energy, right? And, and since that became evident in the early 20th century, the empires of the world have struggled over who's going to control the Middle East, which is why France and, um, and Britain were in control of the Middle East beforehand, and now it's the United States. Um, so, and if you look at how um, the role that, that Israel has played, particularly since 9-11, when the U.S. has launched a full frontal assault on, on this region with open occupation in Afghanistan um, and, and Iraq, Israel has continued to play this watchdog role. So, you have, it, with, with the war in Turkey, the United States actually had a lot of Arab states sort of sign on to be allies in the project. There were a few that, that in some ways, you know, opposed or questioned it. Syria and then parties, the Islamist parties like Hezbollah in, uh, in Lebanon, um, Hamas, of course, and then there was, there was um, Iran. Well, Israel bombed Syria at one point, um, of course launched a massive invasion of Lebanon in 2006 to smash Hezbollah, most recently crushed, um, tried to try to crush Hamas in Gaza, and then who has been the main threat against, um, against Iran but, 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 but Israel. So the very forces that have sought to challenge U.S. hegemony in the Middle East, Israel is, is seeking to play that watchdog role um, in the 21st century. Um, and in that context, like the, 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 the investment on the part of the United States for Israel, I think I think that, that actually sheds light on the question of the Israeli working class because it's not. I think that what Eric said is, is absolutely. Um, it's very useful to think about the, the population of Israel and immigrating um, and, and proving themselves as, as, as Israelis and so on. But it's also the fact that because the U.S. invests so much financially um, and economically in Israel, the life of the Israeli working class is actually subsidized by U.S. imperialism. They reached, I forget what, what year, but they reached a point at, the, at which. Um, 
the U.S. paid U.S. aid in Israel to Israel amounted for fifteen hundred dollars for every man, woman, child in the country. It's actually a different class situation than in a country like the United States, where obviously a war for, for the U.S. working class is a total disaster. We've lost. Um, the working class here has lost since the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. But in Israel, if you look at the most recent offensive right. in Gaza, aid to Israel actually increased from, from, from the United States, and it's things like better for the working class. So it's just a different class society. Yeah. Okay. Um, and can people hear when I tap, or do I need to tap louder? Yeah. Tap louder. Okay. Um, so I have um, a gentleman in the white, and then I have purple written down. Somebody with a purple <laughs> shirt? Is that you? Okay. <laughs> We're going to go with you. Hey, I'm Brian from Rochester, and um, um, some of the people I've been working with in the anti-war movement in Rochester, and some people that are actually at this conference, um, have, have had reservations about, like, you know, why do you why do you focus on Zionism and this kind of like bogeyman of, of anti-Semitism, even though they're, you know they're for Palestinian rights? And I wanted to just say a few things because I think the terrain can be rather tricky when when I think in this country first getting into this subject. And I want to say a couple things about Zionism in general. Um, one is, in, in many ways, it's it's completely unremarkable in terms of, of, of Separatism is, is a feature of, I think, of every oppressed minority. It's a current that develops uh, in, in every oppressed minority around the country, and it's something that, that was completely not, you know, the Garveyites in the United States. This, this happens a lot, and so in that way, it's, not, it's very unremarkable in its response to oppression. But secondly, it's, it's very special, I think, for some obvious reasons. One is the population it's talking about, you know, except for the Holocaust, one of the worst massacres of a population that's, that's ever occurred. But even more importantly now is it's become the linchpin of world imperialism. It's like the, the, the source of the most instability like worldwide. And I think that's why the left does focus on it. And I think we have to cut against this idea that we need to downplay the word Zionism. We can't play into conspiracy theories. It's worth focusing on because it is such an important thing. And this brings up the, the whole topic of this talk, Zionism is false messiah. Because not only the destruction of, of the Palestinians and the, and the instability in the Middle East, it's one of the most unsafe places in the world for a Jew to live. Mm -hmm. Like, more Jews are killed worldwide in Israel than, or than the rest of the world combined most years. And I mean, I think that's worth False messiah is, I think, a tremendous term. It's completely insufficient solution to the problem of anti-Semitism year after year after year. And I think that has to be said. Um, and then maybe uh, just a little point about um, the benefit is Israel is also an incubator for weapons testing. I mean, think about it. F-16, the first time it was used, was used to bomb the, uh, the Iraqi nuclear plant in uh, the 80s. The first use of CS gas that, that actually causes you to convulse but then deteriorate so it can't be medically you know, traced after like five or six hours. First use in Gaza. This idea of this weapon, this flechette's weapon that explodes, I just killed a reporter about a year ago, that these little tiny things like fly through your body and you really hard to see in x-rays. I mean, so there's a weapons testing aspect, and I think the example of socialists in this country during the Holocaust actually fighting for the refugees to be led into the U.S. or the United States government, and that's an example of how socialists fight anti-Semitism against people that, that are standing against us, usually in power. Okay. Um, I'm Elise, I'm from Boston. Uh, I'm not from Boston, sorry, Massachusetts. <laughs> um, I am really, really conflicted because I come from a family where second generation Israeli immigrants, um, they call themselves Zionists, um, Holocaust survivors, Orthodox Jews. Um, I'm wondering if anyone else is kind of in the same boat as me. Um, I try to have discussions with my father about this, and he says he supports um, in this early state, he does not condone any of the things that Israel did in Palestine, but I'm not sure he was aware of what they're actually doing. Like, I wasn't. I'm shocked. Um, I just want books to read. I want to talk to somebody. I don't know. 
how to reconcile my um, my Jewish faith, my family, um, my Israeli roots, I'm a quarter Israeli, with this horrendous um, stuff. So, okay. um, we just have like at the end of discussion. So, I'm gonna abuse my power as chair and call myself for a couple minutes, and then I'm gonna throw it back to uh, Eric. Um, mostly just because I want to speak directly to. Um, to what you were just saying, Elise, is that um, as somebody who's Jewish as well, and actually I was born in Israel, and um, speak up, no. sorry, um, I said as somebody who's Jewish, and actually my family, I was born in Israel, and um, most of my family uh, is is still uh, in Israel. Um, I, you know, and I actually was at one of these conferences quite a number of years ago where I came to a talk like this and had my mind blown. Um, and I think that the main thing that I would say is really that um, this history is a, is a history that, that goes untold. Um, that's especially the case um, in, in the Israeli history books and in the U.S. history books because the U.S. is like the main backer of Israel. And so it's not surprising that um, for a lot of us, you know, this is new information. It's horrifying. Um, and as somebody, you know, as well who's had... Uh, you know, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors, and you know, it's it it pains me to no end to know that their experience is actually manipulated uh, in such a way as to justify the oppression of another people. Um, and you know, I would be happy to talk to you um, afterwards as well. And I guess I would just say that, like, you know, to go back to the history, to go back to you know, just what side of history, you know, do we want to be on the side of the oppressed or the side of the oppressor? Um, and, you know, we can be patient and should be patient with, you know, family members and people around us who, you know, maybe want to be on, on the right side but don't know all the history um, as well and, and, go, and go through it. Um, towards that end, I'm going to skip into a, an announcement I want to make, um, which is about some of the, I think, best books that you can find on the topic. Um, I, I would start with A Struggle for Palestine, which um, is the first book that Haymarket Books ever published. Um, and is just an amazing resource. Um, it's uh, really the best starting point for getting the history of Zionism, the relationship between the U.S. and Israel, um, some more contemporary stuff, although, you know, it's um, a little bit out of date um, in terms of some of the most recent stuff, but it goes through, like, what, what went into the, the so-called peace process, um, you know, why it wasn't really a peace process, and so on. I, I really would uh, recommend this. Um, you can, you can pick up these books either here or at the Haymarket Room. Um, um, a few people mentioned this book, which is probably the, be the single best history um, that you can get of the founding of the State of Israel. It was written by an Israeli historian who has since um, you know, basically exiled for, for writing this. Um, and uh, he only uses primary uh, sources from the Israeli you know, military archival uh, sources and so on. It's a fantastic book, um, although heartbreaking. Um, What's it called? Oh, I'm sorry. The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. <laughs> this great book, you should really check it out. It's called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine by Ilan Pape. Um, and just a few other books. Uh, Beyond Kutzpah, um is about actually the way that um, the, the sort of 
uh, misconception that anti-Semitism is the same thing as anti-Zionism. Uh, it's very meticulous research on the human rights abuses. Uh, Between the Lines is a fantastic book about that was written by an Israeli and a Palestinian so socialist, edited uh, by the two of them, and has a wealth of uh, uh, really good essays that are much more contemporary about what's happening uh, right now. Um, if I am not for myself, this is about this is written as an, uh, uh, a memoir of an anti-Zionist Jew. Um, uh, who's a fantastic writer, Mike uh, Marcusi. That's right. Marcusi. Marcusi. Thank you. I said that wrong. Um, and uh, Israel, a colonial settler state, um, is a good you know um, historical and theoretical uh, background to the founding of the state of Israel. Um, so, and I, I mentioned this before, but we have a, a great magazine called the ISR, the International Socialist Review. It has a number of uh, um, uh, articles, including, like I said, one uh, by uh, Eric on what is socialism. It also has uh, an, an interview um, with uh, Moshe Makhover, who's an Israeli socialist, um, called Israelis and Palestinians Conflict and Resolution. Uh, I recommend people uh, pick that up as well. I have a few copies up front. So without further ado, I'll throw it back to Eric. Okay, I'm going to be pretty brief because I think a lot of people covered a lot of the questions <coughs> in the last few contributions, and I, I thought it was a really good discussion. And I hope, um, hope, hope the rest of the weekend has these sorts of discussions as well. It generally generally does. So, um, I uh, what I wanted to say was, um, let's see. Yeah, um, someone asked about the, uh, the the sort of the bigger picture about um, what the United States and Great Britain get from 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 support for Zionism, support for Israel. I mean, I think you know, I have my hope the talk tried tried to lay out that you know it was it was it's primarily um, a, an attempt to have a, a kind of fierce military force that can challenge and um, provide a kind of um, a rampart, so to speak, is to use the Zionist term, um, against the rise of, of, in particular, nationalism, you know, various nationalist movements that threaten imperial interest. I mean, I guess that's maybe less sort of urgent today, or it sort of maybe seems a little anachronistic in the sense that, you know, we live in a, in a period kind of after the, the growth of most of these very radical and, and you know, national liberation struggles. But I mean, when um, when Nasser, you know, uh, nationalized the Suez Canal or things like that. I mean, that was these were huge events that shook, you know, the kind of imperial war, world order. Um, and um, the United States looked to Israel in particular as some sort of, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, a watchdog, a kind of a stable guarantor of its interests in the area. And I think that today, you know, more Israel acts less as a sort of defense of, of, of imperial interests and more as a sort of launching point for the pursuit of them, you know, in the context of the war on terror and so on and so forth, uh, and, you know, in the post-September 11th world. Um, and I think that, if anything, September 11th has, you know, increased the importance of Israel um, because, you know, I think the United States maybe hoped that its invasion of Iraq would transform it into an Israel-like, you know, place. Um, and that they would be able to set up, you know, bases. That's why they built this massive embassy there, and so on and so forth. And instead, you have, you know, the opposite. You know, they've um, they've made the the, the the whole region more unstable. They've inadvertently strengthened the hand of Iran, and so on and so forth. So then they have to fall back again on, you know, on Israel uh, in particular. But of course, the U.S. has always tried to cut as many deals with as many different players as possible. That's why they they give the you know the second largest recipient of U.S. aid after 
or Israel for many, many years was Egypt, you know? Um, and uh, then you've got the close connection to the, the monarchy of Saudi Arabia. You know, the U.S. was always for democracy, especially in the Middle East, you know? Um, uh, of course, backs, you know, the Saudi monarchs um, and so on. So, um, you know, I, I don't know, I, you know, and I think um, Brian just mentioned, you know, the way in which um, even right up through the 80s, I mean, you know, they, the Israelis, at the same time that the United States was, was wooing, was giving money and, and aid and so on to uh, the, the Iraqi regime under Saddam Hussein, um, they also gave a green light for the Israelis to go bomb Iraq's attempt to build a nuclear reactor in 1981. You know, that, those are the sorts of things that, um, that Israel has, has kind of the, the sort of tasks and, 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 and errands that it has performed for the United States. Let me just um, end by saying a few things about the question of movement. Um, Oh, and one other thing, actually, uh, if you're interested, and there's a whole bunch of articles. If you go to the homepage of the International Socialist Review, isreview.org, mm -hmm. down the right-hand side, there's a whole bunch, a collection of a lot of the writings on the Middle East, uh, both, you know, the stuff about Iraq and, and war and terror and things like that, but a lot about Israel, Zionism, and so on. And if you go through those, there's, you know, well footnoted, you can find, you know, a tremendous number of references that I think you'll find really useful for answers to some of the questions that you're asking. Um, I think that the, the question of, of building and rebuilding a struggle for Palestinian rights is, you know, obviously going to be the subject and the, the, the attention of, of, of um, for a lot of people in the United States and around the world. Now, we've gone through a period where the anti-war movement has gone and gone through a hole in the ground, and so this is all starting at a fairly kind of low level, um, especially in the United States. Um, but I think that it's important to recognize that um, that in many parts of the world there's actually some significant things that are going on. I just want to mention a couple. Um, in, what was it, June, what happened to my sheets of paper now? Sorry, uh, June 12th, uh, the Belgian French financial group Dexia just announced that it's no longer going to finance Israeli settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories through its Israeli branch. This was the result of a months-long campaign in Belgium, which was supported by NGOs, political parties, local groups, and so on. Um, this is like, you know, you're talking about cutting off the extension of credit in the order of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to the financing of Israeli settlements. Um, likewise, a, um, a transportation company called Veolia um, was basically forced to withdraw its um, role in a $1 billion tram construction project, which was determined by a French court to be violating, you know, um, rules about, you know, aid international law in terms of aiding a country to uh, make permanent its occupation of a, you know, to basically annex land through its through its building of, of infrastructure and so on. So there are, and again, this was the result of a campaign. So um, so I think that this is, you know, these are some of the things that are going on internationally. Um, obviously, we're here in the belly of the beast, you know, and our job is to, you know, make the biggest ulcer we can. Um, and that has to, um, you know, basically is going to, uh, you know, take long and patient work. Uh, one of the things that people can and should do is, um, I think it's yet yeah, tonight at 7.30, there's, a, there's a, a session on the struggle for Palestine. There's going to be panelists talking about building a boycott and investment sanctions movement, uh, one of the people who's coordinating the Viva Palestina convoy. To, to Gaza in uh, July 4th. Actually, I'm going to be on that. There's a few other ISO members going. If you have any interest, come and talk to me if you're interested in going um, and have access to $2,000. Um, and uh, um, so, you know, th those are the sorts of, of struggles that are, that, are, that are afoot. But I think that partly we also have to acknowledge that, 
you know, that we are in a rebuilding phase for all of the sort of efforts to, to, to um, build an anti-imperialist movement in the United States, especially in the wake of the, the election of the Obama administration and so on. And that's sort of, um, you know, why this particular history, the discussion of Zionism and so on, is so important because it's about how to, 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 um, to give a harder political foundation for um, such a struggle in, in the United States, in the belly of the beast. And I think that um, it's you know kind of our obligation, really, to go and learn this history and to help others learn it as well and to, um, and to, to um, make sure that we, are, we feel completely confident in saying, yes, we're anti-Zionists, but we're also, and importantly so, the most consistent fighters against anti-Semitism. And that is really you know, the legacy of, of, and, and the meaning of this history, you know, that, that it's, it's not only possible, it's essential if you want to be someone who stands for justice and for equality and for liberation, to both oppose Zionism and oppose anti-Semitism anywhere it shows itself. Thanks. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.